We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3 today, Matthew 3. I'm a little under the weather today, so I appreciate you guys bearing with me. Matthew 3, uh, we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus, the, this uh, very famous account of the baptism of our Lord. Uh, in Matthew 3, starting in 13, and then we'll read all the way through 17. <coughs> Matthew three thirteen. To 17, of course, the gospel writer Matthew is recording these things, but he writes them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, these words come to us today with authority, the same kind of authority as if, as if Jesus were speaking to us. So let's hear together the word of the Lord. From Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. This is John the Baptist. Now John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've been in a series where we are looking at the righteous life of Jesus. At Advent, of course, we celebrate God's salvation, that God has saved us, that God has sent us a Savior. But we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what does that mean? What does this salvation mean? And, and there are three parts of the ministry or the work of Jesus in salvation that we talk about, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So in the life of Jesus... The life that Jesus lived on earth, he lived out a righteous record on our behalf. This is very important to believe. That Jesus didn't just, he wasn't just a model for us. He was achieving a record of righteousness for us. He was a, achieving a, a righteous status before God. So if you are in Christ, you can appear before God in that record or, or if you are with that record of righteousness applied to you. In his death, he paid for our sin. So the, the, the price of our sin, the judgment that we deserve for our sin, which is death, separation from God, Jesus endured. He was separated. He died. He was put away from the Father so that in him, as we read in Romans, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no judgment to fear. There's no separation from God to fear, no matter what you've done. If you're in Christ, he died the death that we deserved to die. And in the power of his resurrection, he has overcome sin. He's overcome death. He is bringing about this renewed world. He's making all things right. You may say, <clears throat> well, it doesn't seem like everything's right out there. And it certainly doesn't. But God is bringing renewal through his church. And so that, that renewal actually begins in your heart, 
When, when your affections are changed, when your life is changed, when, when you, by the power of the resurrection, begin to love the things that God loves, begin to live under the reign of Christ, begin to delight in the Lord. That's living into the power of the resurrection. And the evidence of his new creation, the evidence of, of this power of the resurrection should be known in your life. It should be known in your family. It should be known, obviously, among us here in this church. There's a, there's a little bit of a taste of the kingdom that we should all experience when we come together in worship. That's why it's, it's so good and, and precious to be together. Now, if you were with us last week, I said that one of the reasons that I think that we don't live into the resurrection, we don't see ourselves as agents of renewal, you know, sent by God to bring about renewal and redemption for the whole world. One of the reasons we don't live into the power of the resurrection is that we haven't fully trusted in the righteousness of the life of Christ. We're too busy trying to justify ourselves. We're too busy trying to create a status for ourselves. We're, we're trying to make it, as we've been saying. We're trying to do something to say, my life counts. I'm worth something. I am a good person. I am a righteous person. And you know, I got this idea for this series by listening to all of your baptism testimonies because you all talk about that. And, and, and there's different ways that you go out trying to make it, trying to achieve a, a sense of righteousness. You know, a lot of people, it's their parents' expectations, right? I, I did what my parents wanted me to do. Or some of you, it's religious expectations. I was a good Christian girl, or I was a good Christian boy. I, I was the good person. I always did the things that I was supposed to do. Or some of you, it's success, right? I, you know, I went to the right college. I made a lot of money. But still in my heart, there was this emptiness. There was this longing. C.S.U. Lewis uses this uh, German word, Zainzut, that I really like. And, and the idea of Zainzut is this, it's that little gap of sorrow that is always in your heart. And you know that things aren't complete. You know that things aren't as they should be. You know that things aren't as, as, as they should be, right? And I think it's that longing for union with God. And the only thing that really fills that is when we can rest in the Lord. And the more that you rest in the Lord and the more that you delight in the Lord, the, the smaller that gap of longing comes and, and you actually find peace and you actually find rest in the Lord. And that's what Jesus has done for you. That's the power of the gospel that he brings you into fellowship with God. You know, I, I, I mentioned a professor that I had last week, this guy that says, you know, the gospel doesn't just bring us up. It's not that we're just brought up to not, right? It's not that we just come to zero and God slaps us on the hand and says, I'll forgive you this time. But if you ever do anything like that again, you're doomed, you know. That's how I parent my kids, you know. But God has sent us a greater salvation. God has says, no, what God has done in Christ is he himself has taken on the price of our sin. He himself has achieved for us a perfect righteousness. So it's, it's not that we're just brought up to not and forgiven this one time. No, in Christ, we're forgiven of all past sins, present sins, and future sins. And, and, and on top of that, we are given this satisfactory record, this record of righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus. There's nothing more, I want you to hear this, that we have to prove before God to receive his delight to receive his pleasure. Now, here's the deal. I'll go ahead and tell you. It's hard to live by faith. It's hard to live like that. I just said that. It sounds wonderful. And you're like, man, that sounds good. But it's hard to believe that. 
You know, one of the things I've, I've said before, and I really believe it, is that grace is actually one of the great stumbling blocks of Christianity. We don't want grace. We want a little grace, right? We want a little grace. We want to mostly be self-justified. We know there's a few things that were really bad that yes, God's probably upset about those, and can you just give me grace over those? But look at all the rest of this stuff I've done, God. Look at all the rest of this stuff I've achieved. We don't want the true message of grace, which says, you know, nothing is the old song, Rock of Ages says, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. It's hard for us to believe. We, we don't want grace. We want just a little grace. Grace is the stumbling block of Christianity. We actually want, we actually want our own sense of, of righteousness and of achievement. And so what we're doing this month is we're kind of looking at those ways. I'm trying to kind of stir them up. I'm, I, my goal in this is that you would see how futile all of these attempts of righteousness really are so that you'll actually rest in the righteousness that's already yours in Jesus. We looked at parenting last week. We're looking at success next week. This week, I want to look at religion. Now, religion, it's kind of a hard word to define. I, I just have two points false religion and true religion. False religion and true religion. Religion is kind of a hard word to define. Uh, you know, in the traditional sense, um, you know, if somebody says, you know, what is your religion, right? Well, they would be asking, you know, are you a Buddhist? Are you a Christian? Are you a Muslim? Um, what, what set of divine laws do you adhere to? Now, in a very, in a very Christian setting, um, like some, you know, like I'm from Alabama, and Alabama somebody says, "What religion are you?" They're not asking. They don't expect you to say Muslim. You know, they expect you to say Methodist or Baptist or Catholic. Like, what 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 branch of Christianity do you come from? That's what the question means. Um, but even in very secular settings, um, you know, people will use this idea of religion. She's very religious about her work. Uh, and it's to mean you know, that you're very disciplined, you're very committed, right? This idea of being a religious person or a very committed person. Sometimes people use the word religion to mean uh, that you're like a good person. She's, she's very religious or he's very religious. He would never do that, right? This, this sense that the old kind of Southern slang, losing my religion, right? I'm, I'm gonna lose my religion on you, which, is, which basically means I'm gonna quit being good for a little while and blow up on you and get angry. Um, recently, uh, you know, I've certainly in my childhood, and I hear this kind of phrase a lot, there's a very popular phrase in, in evangelicalism that says, well, I'm not into religion, I'm just into relationship, right? You've, you've, you've heard this. And basically to say, you know, I don't need some sort of system to talk about God, I just have a relationship with God. Or, of course, people today say, well, I'm not a religious person. I'm just a spiritual person. I'm a very spiritual person. So, anyway, it's interesting how people talk about religion, what the word religion even means. I feel like I have to give a little definition here. And so, again, I have these two points, false religion and true religion. I, was talking about, I think what, what religion is is in a false sense and what religion is in a true sense. So, false religion, I believe, is anything that keeps you from trusting in God but leads you to a greater faith in yourself or in something other than God, right? So a false religion, rather than leading you to fear God or be in awe of God or wonder at God, 
It leads you to have some sense of confidence in yourself or confidence in a religious system or maybe confidence in a religious leader, but it's not confidence in the Lord. And, and this, actually, these systems, they can be very seductive. It's easy to fall in to these false religious systems. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot of categories we could look at here. Two kind of big, broad categories that I would say of kind of false religious systems are one is moralism, and then the other is sacramentalism. So moralism is a kind of false religion that leads you to have a confidence in your moral superiority to others, right? Your moral superiority. I know that I'm good because I've done this and this and this, and that person, they haven't. And therefore, I'm good, and they're not good. The, the classic biblical example of this is Luke 18. You know, you have the Pharisee and the tax collector. They both go to the temple to pray. <coughs> Let me just read it for you. This is a parable of Jesus. It says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, so a religious leader, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all that I get. So I mean, it's good that he's not an extortioner. It's good that he's not an adulterer. It's good that he tithes. But you see his moralism in this. This is classic moralism. I am good before God. Thank you, God, that I'm not as bad as those people. It's a confidence in the self. It's a confidence in his own personal behavior. This is false religion. It's any system that leads you to actually greater confidence in yourself and not confidence in God. Now, notice the tax collector. Now, the tax collector is the tax collector. He's one who's betrayed his people. It's a very um, looked-down-upon position in that Jewish society. But verse 13, it says, The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the amazing thing about this text is how does it end? It says, this man was justified. The tax collector was justified and not the other. Now, why? Well, don't you see? The, the, the Pharisee only has confidence in himself. I'm not like these other men. I'm not, like, I, I'm not an adulterer. I don't do that. And they do. I'm not a tax collector like that guy. But the tax collector only has confidence in the Lord. I mean, this is, this is a sign of true religion and false religion right here. The tax collector is only, his only confidence is that God might save him. His only confidence is in his worship of a merciful God. You know, I read an article by Albert Moeller on moralism this week. And uh, he had some good, it was very helpful. He said, the seduction of moralism is the essence of its power, right? This is why we like moralism. It, it puts us in control. It gives us power. We can use laws to manipulate others and to manipulate God for our own good. We're so easily seduced into believing that we can actually gain all the approval that we need by behavior. If I just do this and this and this and this, it's all gonna go well with me. And in fact, oftentimes in moralism, there's no humility before God. In fact, there's superiority over God. <laughs> we say, God, I did this and this and this and this. Now you owe me big time. 
I held up my end of the bargain. Now you have to do this and this and this. Do you, do you notice the attitude there? There's no submission. There's no humility. It's manipulation of moral good in order to be in control. Control of others and even in control of God. Now, of course, here's the deal. None of us can do this. <laughs> you know, there actually is a way to be moral. It's to always do what God would do, to be like Jesus, to always love what God loves, to always hate what God hates, to always think as God thinks. But we know we can't do this. And so Moeller goes on in his article and he says, you know, of course, in order to participate in this seduction, we must negotiate a moral code that defines acceptable behavior with innumerable loopholes, right? Don't we do this? Oh, there, yeah, well, there's a, of course, in this situation, I can do that. Or in this situation, I can do that. Most moralists would not claim to be without sin, but merely be on scandal. That is sufficient morality, right? And again, there's all sorts of moral codes, right? Traditionally, and even today, there's been like a monastic moral code, right? If you follow this kind of very strict conduct, very strict diet, you know, you do these certain things, then you will be good, right? Uh, you know, there's a Baptist kind of moral code. Again, you know, don't drink, don't dance, don't go to R-rated movies, right? But again, there's usually always loopholes in these things, aren't there? You know, in our hyper-politically charged aged, there's uh, political moral codes, right? So like there's a Republican, uh, you know, kind of moral code. There's an ethos in this group, right? And there's different types of groups. I'm a Trump Republican or I'm a Bush Republican. And there's, there's, there's expected behaviors within that, expected things that you should be doing if you're living up to those moral codes. Or in a you know, more progressive political way, again, there's moral things. You, know, you can't just say, I support BLM or carbon neutral environment. You have to prove that. You always have to be doing something to prove that you are a good and moral and right person. More, moralism is very much dependent on the immoral person. This is one of the problems of the system. In fact, moralism wouldn't work if everybody was moral. There has to be at least one bad example. <laughs> there has to be at least one person that you say, or well, not like him. There, there has to be a necessary shunning, right? Somebody has to be shunned. Somebody has to be kicked out. Somebody has to be there so we can say, well, at least I'm not like this tax collector. Of course, in ancient times, we called it shunning. Today, we call it canceling. Moralism by definition, depends on these things. And I just want to say, if you're trying to find a sense of righteousness through moralism, through the adherence to some sort of moral code, I want to just go ahead and tell you right now, you'll always be anxious. You'll never rest. You'll have deep anxiety because morals are always changing. You're never, you're never moral enough. You can never keep it up. Related to this, another kind of broad area of false religion is sacramentalism. <clears throat> and it's confidence in some sort of set of sacraments. Now, a sacrament is some kind of holy act, something that you do to find favor with God. There's a kind of false religion that says, if you just do these certain holy acts, you'll find favor with God. Again, the seduction is it puts you in total control. It puts, it puts the impulse on you. 
Of course, we see this outside of Christianity. We see this in a lot of different ways. Um, Islam, you know, famously has the five pillars, fasting, uh, praying five times a day, a profession of faith, almsgiving, a pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, our, our Roman Catholic friends, there's a lot of, a, 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 certainly a sacramental system there. Baptism, First Communion, the Eucharist, confession, holy orders, the anointing of the sick, marriage. And again, there's a true way to practice these. Again, I'm going to talk later about true religion. But it's very easy for the focus of our lives to be on the sacrament themselves and not on God. And again, there's high church sacraments and there's low church sacraments. You know, a lot of you know that I, most of my family kind of around my immediate family was Roman Catholic. My particular family grew up in a Baptist tradition. And it was interesting for me as a kid, you know, going to both Baptist services and mass to kind of see how these things played out. Of course, in Roman Catholic services, the, the moment of great tension in the service was the Eucharist, right? The giving of the mass. There was this great anticipation about that. And the, the, the temptation, the impulse was to trust in that act as some means of making you holy and righteous, but of course, even in the low church or Baptist tradition, there's the same kind of thing with the, the moment of invitation that somebody might, you know, walk the aisle, pray the prayer, and get baptized. Now, again, there's, there's nothing wrong with, of course, confession of sin, being baptized. These are good things, but the, the, the confidence for people in their salvation became on the act itself of praying the prayer or walking the aisle or getting baptized rather than the God that was inviting them into salvation. And so, because people believed in these acts, they walked the aisle over and over and over again, or they prayed the, aisle, prayed the prayer over and over and over again. And preachers would always make it more anxiety-ridden than it needed to be, because they would always say, if you pray this prayer and you really mean it, well, that, of course, caused tremendous doubt. People would say, did I really mean it? Did I close my eyes tight enough? You know, was I gripping my fist just right when I said the prayer? Again, it created this sort of sacramentalism where our confidence was in the sacrament of doing these certain things rather than the God who was behind these things. And of course, the problem with moralism and sacramentalism is they never, they never get rid of that zainzut that's in your heart. In fact, in many ways, they only increase it, that sense of longing or emptiness and the reason is, is your heart, I want you to hear this, your heart was made to rest in the Lord. Your, your heart and my heart was made to rest in the Lord, and it can only find rest. It can only find rest when it rests in the Lord. And the more you trust in the Lord, the more you really have confidence in him and not yourself and not your ability to manipulate him by obeying his laws or by uh, you know, doing his sacraments, the more you trust in him, and rest in him, and delight in him, and worship him, the more rest you will have. And the baptism of Jesus is an interesting place to, to consider these things. And, and, and we come into this, you would say, religious act, and what Jesus does here is he totally transforms it. Of course, John comes, Jesus comes to John, and John, again, has this kind of moral impulse. He says, wait a second, I can't baptize you. You're more moral than me. You should be baptizing me. Of course, he wasn't wrong. 
I mean, there was, he, Jesus certainly was more moral than John. But notice what Jesus responds. And notice how important this is. He says, Jesus says, let it be so now. This is what we've been talking about this whole series. For it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus is saying to John here in a very real way, this baptism, <coughs> my baptism, this baptism that we're about to participate in is actually going to fill up what is lacking in your righteousness. Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness on John's behalf and on your behalf. Now, it's, it's good to take a, a second to think about what baptism actually is. Now, baptism was practiced in this sense in the ancient world. In fact, if you go to Israel, there's a community not far from here where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River called Qumran. It's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it was a group of Essenes that lived there, and they had this kind of baptismal pool. In fact, you, you can, I don't know if they let you walk down into it. I think they do. But you can, you can walk down, there's this little pool, and you would walk down into the water, and then when you're done, you can walk back out. Nowadays, there's no water in the pool. But you can get the, you can get the sensation of going into the water and being cleansed. It was a recognition of repentance. It was a recognition of, I need to be cleansed. I need to, I need to somehow wash away my sin. And maybe water can be a sign of, of what will wash me. But of course, what Jesus does is he comes into this practice of baptism and he totally renews it. And what he shows is not the way that you can just symbolically be cleansed, but a way that you can actually be cleansed. I want you to hear this. No water, no soap, no amount of like Lysol can cleanse you of your sin, can make you clean before God. Actually, the only thing that can make you clean is death and resurrection. And that's actually what Jesus has come to do. He's taken this old symbol and he's, he's remade it. And so now we understand the baptism not about a ceremonial washing, but about a sign of death and resurrection. Jesus, in his baptism, was showing the very means by which he would make John righteous, that he would die for him. They would be raised for him. And, and that's all of our baptism. It's a, it's a symbol of the very means by which Jesus makes us righteous and clean. You know, water throughout the scripture is a sign of judgment. It's a sign of death. Think about the flood narrative where the enemies of God are drowned in the flood. The Egyptians are drowned in the Red Sea or, or Jonah when he's running from God being thrown into the sea. There's always this sign of, of God's judgment against the sin of humanity in these water signs. And yet, in every one of those, for the people that God loves, for his covenant people, what does he do? He provides this spectacular way of salvation for them that they have no control over. I mean, this is a spectacular way of salvation for them that they can't say, this was my doing. I mean, think about the story of the people of Israel at the Red Sea. They could never say, we parted the sea. Think about Jonah. I mean, what a weird story is that? He could never say, oh yeah, I got into a fish's mouth and hung out there for three days. No, it's this, it's this spectacular way of salvation that God brings to his covenant people that just shows that salvation is only and solely the work of the Lord. And that's what Jesus is doing here in his baptism. 
He's showing the means by which he would bring righteousness. It's death and resurrection. The righteous, as we read in 1 Peter 3, for the unrighteous, in order that we, the unrighteous, may be brought to God. And of course, if we look at verse 16, I love this. Here's the result. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, I mean, imagine this. You know, uh, there was somebody that came out after the first service that said, man, can you imagine that day when this voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And I want you to hear this. Here's the promise of the gospel to you. If you are in Christ, he lived righteousness for you. He died the death that you should have died. He's been raised to overcome. And in him, through faith in him, the father says the same thing to you. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Not because of our righteousness, but because of his. The righteous for the unrighteous that we may be brought to God. And of course, all this leads to the second point, which is true religion. If, if false religion is all about you being in control, manipulating the sacraments, manipulating morality to get right with God, never really trusting in God, true religion is the opposite. It's, it's about you trusting God, knowing God, resting in God, and resting not in what you have done, but resting in what God has done through Jesus on your behalf. You have to believe this. Again, grace is a stumbling block, but salvation is a gift. You, you can't earn it. You, you can't manipulate it. You can only receive it. Jesus has achieved all righteousness. Jesus has paid for every sin. Jesus has overcome all things in his resurrection. Salvation is a gift. And you either receive it by faith or you reject it because you're not willing to receive it. You're not willing to humble yourself before God. You're not willing to live by faith. You're stuck in self-justification. You're stuck in work. And let me just tell you, a lot of people live this way. I always say Christianity is the only club that you have to have a bad resume to get into. And for really smart, good resume Atlantans like you, you don't want that to be the mark of your life. You like your resume. You like to live behind it. It's very hard for you to humble yourself before a holy and almighty God. But of course, as we read in Romans 117, the righteous, the ones who are right before God will live by faith. And if we do, then we read in Romans 8 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, we read in Colossians 3, as we looked at a few weeks ago, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on those things, the things that are above, not on the things that are of earth. And he says this, for you have died. That's what it means to be a Christian. I've died. And my life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Here, here's what it is. The Christian life, I want you to hear this. It's about realizing what God has done for you and what he is doing through you. That's really what it is. 
It's about realizing what God has done for you and what he is doing through you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one, will, no one can boast. That's what God has done for us. And again, we don't like that. We want to boast. And then what he, and then, but it's also about what he is doing for we are God's workmanship. Our life is not our own. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, some people will say, hold on, Jason. You need to be careful how you're preaching here. If you keep preaching like this, your church, they're not gonna be motivated to do moral things. They're gonna say, well, if Jesus has done everything and everything's a gift, then I can do whatever I want. You better watch out, Jason. You're gonna lose control as a pastor really fast. You keep preaching this justifying faith stuff. Here's the deal. That's exactly the point. I actually want you to do whatever you want to do. I just want whatever you want to do to be what God wants you to do. That's the goal, for you to actually have the heart of God, for you to actually delight in the things that God delights in, for you to actually love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates and delight in him. Don't you see? That actually is the point. The point of Christianity is not behavior modification. It's what Jonathan Edwards called religious affections, where your heart is changed, not just your behavior, where, where what you love is changed. And it's actually only when you get this, it's only when you get what God has done for you that your heart can be so moved that you actually become a good person, that you actually start doing righteous things out of worship and not just for self-gratification. There's an old Belgic confession. It was written in 1561. And I'm going to be reading from Article 24. If this is something that you've wrestled with, I would actually go look this up and read the whole article. I'm just going to read you a few snippets. But it says this. It says, We believe that true faith, true faith produced in us by the hearing of God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit, regenerates us <coughs> and makes us new creatures, right? This is the point. We want different things. We, we're new creatures, causing us to live a new life, freeing us from the slavery of sin. We're no longer bound to sin. We're free to actually love what is good and right and true and beautiful in the Lord. And then, then, then the confession goes on to say this. This is so helpful. I want you to hear this. It says, therefore, far from making people cold toward living in a pious and holy way, so trusting in the gift of salvation, believing that God has done everything on our behalf, believing that Jesus has died for our sins and achieved righteousness on our behalf, you may say, well, that's gonna take away your whole motivation, right? No, this is, no, no, no. Far from making people cold toward living in a pious and holy way, this justifying faith, quite to the contrary, so works within them that apart from it, apart from it they will never do a thing out of love for God but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. Did you catch that? It's actually saying, when you get this gift of righteousness, this, this gift of grace that Jesus is giving you, then and only then 
When you serve, you're not just serving so God will be like, oh, look, he served, check plus. When you go to worship, you won't just go to worship so God will say, okay, well, I guess they don't have to go to hell now. They went to a church service. No. No, it's saying, no, God, when you really get the gospel, when you really get that Jesus has already achieved all righteousness on your behalf, when you worship, you can worship because you actually love God. You can serve because you actually love other people and you love the God who created them. You can give, not out of means to try to buy your way into heaven, no, because you actually love the things of God and want to be a part of his work. Don't you see? False religion is dependence on the self and it leaves you anxious and tormented. But true religion, true religion leads you to rest in Christ in what he has done for you. The Christian life, I want you to hear this, the Christian life is about realizing what God has done for you and what he is doing through you. And here's the thing, in true religion is anything that binds you to that. Now the word religion, as I talked about earlier, has come to mean many different things. But I like the, I like the old word. The, the, the word comes from the Latin religare, which means, and I, I love this idea, it means to bind again, to be retied, to be rebound, to be bound again to the Lord. So again, going to church is good, but only, it's only really good if it rebinds you to the Lord, if it makes you rest in the things of God, if it makes you delight in the love of God. Serving others is good, but, but it's good because it, it rebinds you to the Lord. You, you can serve others in the way that Jesus has served you and given himself to you. You know, James has this very interesting phrase where he says, true religion is this. And he says, it's to serve the widows and the orphans. You know what I'm talking about? And it's like, well, what's that all about? Why are the widows and the orphans so important? Well, don't you see, in that time, the widows and the orphans had no cultural capital they had no collateral. There was no personal benefit to serving the widows and the orphans. You would only do it. You would only do it. You would only be merciful toward those who could not repay you at all if you believed that someone had been so merciful to you when you could not repay them at all. True religion, it binds you to the gift of salvation that God has done on our behalf through Jesus, your community group. It binds you to be, to be there with other believers. Again, if you go to a community group and you say, well, I'm going to do this so I can look down at all my buddies that went to the bar tonight, that's not the point. No, it's to bind you to the Lord. I say, man, how good it is to be with these people who love Jesus as I do, going on mission you know, it's no good if you only go on mission to have some sort of moral superiority. I really care about the Great Commission. No, you, it's only good if it binds you to God's heart for the nations. Generosity, again, I mean, it's no good if you say, well, I've given, therefore God owes me big time. It's no good. That's false religion. False religion always leads you to pride. How could it not? <laughs> because it's putting you in control. You're able to look at the other person and say, I'm better than them. False religion always leaves you to self-interest. False religion actually leads you away from God, but true religion, true religion leads you to humility. 
because you realize, what do I have that God has not given me? True religion leads you to compassion because you realize God has been so compassionate to me. How could I not be compassionate to others? True, true religion leads you away from the self and toward him and toward worship. We're going to close our service by taking communion together. And again, I love this act. Now, somehow, <laughs> some people think, well, if we do this, it's like magical bread and magical wine that we're going to drink. That's not what this is. We're not manipulating some religious act to give us some spiritual superpower. No, we're being bound to the grace that God has shown us in Jesus. That on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread before his disciples. And he said, look, this is my body given to you. This is my blood poured out for you. I'm making a covenant with you by my righteous life, by my atoning death, and by the power of my resurrection. And so church family, I invite you today to, re to be rebound, to remember what the Lord has done for you, to live in faith. I pray that this, all of this, this worship, this time of prayer we're about to have, this time of communion, it would cause your faith to rise. That you would live less by works, less by self-confidence, and more by faith in the completed work of Jesus. Now, if you're not a believer here, if you're visiting with a friend or maybe kind of new to Christianity, and you say, I don't, I don't know if I really like, believe in Jesus like this. I don't know if I believe that he is my only hope and righteousness. First of all, I'm so glad you're here. But you know, the Bible actually warns us against taking this meal in, in a way that would lack integrity, in a way that would be without faith. We, we only do this with faith. We, we don't just do this. Again, there's no spiritual bonus points to be gained here. We're only doing this to be rebound with our Lord. So if, if you say, well, Jesus is not really the Lord of my life, just let the elements pass. Nobody's gonna look at you weird. But if you, if you are in Christ, if you're trusting him, you're trusting in his completed righteousness that you have nothing to prove because of the righteous life of Jesus. If you're trusted, if you're trusting in his atoning death, that you have no condemnation to fear before God because Jesus has paid for every sin. If you're trusting in the power of his resurrection that Jesus has called you to life with him, you'll be with him. Then I invite you to this meal to look back to the cross, to the life of Jesus and what he's done for us and to look forward to the day that we'll be with him in his kingdom, feasting, celebrating his completed work. Let's consider these things as we worship and as the elements are passed.